Welcome to the Gallipod with Galliplacidia. In this episode, I'm grilling my friend Shibs about colonialism. For the first maybe 15 minutes, it's mainly me asking stupid questions about Guam and Guam's history and Guam's politics, and Shibs tolerates me, and then we start talking about colonialism in relation to fandom. I'm here with my friend Shibs, who is from Guam. Hello, Shibs. Hello. Hi, how are you? Doing great. I have woken Shibs up um, with questions about colonialism, which she assures me is her favorite thing to wake up to. So (laughs) that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, So I I guess we'll just start. um, Shibs, can you introduce yourself and just tell me a little bit about what you do and how that relates to colonial literature? Yeah, um, so I'm an Indigenous Palauan Chamorro writer and teacher um, based in Guam. So my mom's side, she's Palauan from Palau, and my dad's side, he's Chamorro. um, And those are like the native people of Guam. Uh, And Guam is a U.S. territory, technically. Um, Which is bizarre, by the way, because America goes on and on. I mean, not okay. I just feel like Americans kind of pretend they don't have an empire, but like... (laughs) oh no yeah and they definitely have one it's so and it's and it's funny to me like growing up in this context and knowing that like you grow up and you're like oh yeah we're occupied because like there's no way that I can be confused for (laughs) American you know but then like when you go to the states and it's funny that that that's like my language right like when I'm in the states I'm not in my motherland I'm in the states and and they're like what what are we doing all the way over there and I was like interesting that you don't know this but yeah we are I am from uh, I'm one of your loyal subjects <laughs> um, loyal subjects but yeah <laughs> yeah that yeah America very much has colonies so I am American and I don't know anything about what it what like the relationship between America and Guam is um I, this is a stupid question but I've got to ask it so like can you vote in American elections uh, no, so we can Yeah, I know it's ridiculous. Because <laughs> I guess so, like the Organic Act, which is right. All all territories have like their little version of a constitution that is that like lays out the parameters of our political relationship. What was the word you used there? Uh, the the Organic Act of yeah, and so for Guam, like it it are the parameters of our political relationship is we don't get federal income tax, um, but we're still like incorpor- like unincorporated ter- territory. So we're citizens and we're ruled by US federal law. And there's like a big ass military base here or bases and we're US citizens. Like we, we don't have to be like naturalized if we move to the States. Right. And like, if I was a resident in the States for however many years that, that is required to establish my residency, I could vote in a U.S. election. But as a person who lives in Guam and will never not live here, um, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I don't have um, voting rights. So yeah, the suffrage movement never quite ended. Yeah. And like millions of us who are that way in the territories. Yeah. That is uh, very strange because it's like kind of halfway house of citizenship right yes it's very very much second class yeah that's shitty um so it's another stupid question uh and by the way um if i say something insensitive please just let me know i'm you know not trying to be a dick so just let me know (laughs) um so does that mean you have any do you have dual citizenship or is it just american citizenship that you have 
uh, just just American, yeah. It, because right to have dual dual citizenship, Guam would have to be recognized as its own um, independent country, but we're not. So under yeah, we're we're just American citizens without full rights of American citizens. Do a lot of people in Guam want Guam to be its own country? It's very much split, right? Because like the decol the decolonization movement is very old. It dates back to like when the Spanish first came here and colonized us around Magellan's time, right? So like 500 plus years ago. Wow. And um, after the Spanish-American War, we were ceded to America. So it's been this like, you know, half a millennia journey of transition of powers and Chamorros, like the indigenous people here always trying to like assert their autonomy, but never actually given that opportunity. And, but like under America, even more so than under the Spanish, there was like a really huge push for this like overhaul of our culture. And so because we've become so Americanized via militarization, you have a lot of people who are like very patriotic. Cause like context, right? Like demographic wise, like one in eight Chamorros will probably end up in the military like in their lifetime. Wow. So it, it's kind of like this forced assimilation into the culture where like even if you are critical of America it's impossible not to be connected to people who have quite literally like served within this very like intensely indoctrinated system of like patriotism and nationalism right so people who want independence for Guam which like I would classify myself as like part of the decolonization movement mm -hmm. like we're we've got we've gained a recent resurgence probably in the past decade largely due to the work of like activists and educators and even kind of just like the general political social environment of like post uh social movements in the States that have kind of coincided with our movement i think that makes sense. i think what I've, i imagine you're referring to is the fact that like in 2008 we all thought feminism was boring and stupid and yeah. that we were in a post we were in a colorblind society and none of us could mm -hmm. see color uh and by 2014 we had realized that was not the case so i can see that that would that would line up um that's really interesting uh what it made me think of a little bit uh was the kind of scottish situation um in the uk because mm -hmm. scotland had a um God, what's the word I'm thinking of? A referendum. Yes, a referendum a couple of years ago where uh, it was before Brexit and mm -hmm. they wanted to decide whether they should be their own country again. And Scotland sort of similarly has had this situation where it's been a long time that Britain uh, has had Scotland, um, roughly since the 1600s, um, 1603, I think. And uh, although it wasn't... It wasn't um, it wasn't a military takeover, really. It was um, that the Scottish king became king of England and then therefore owned Scotland and England and they kind of just incorporated it. Uh, and you have that uncomfortable thing of like there are Scottish people who, I mean, I think most Scottish people kind of hate the English, um, mm -hmm. but also the two cultures have been really, really merged and that makes any kind of um, break up very difficult, which sounds kind of similar, I think. Does that sound right? Yeah, very much so. And I think that is like the big, and like when you look at like post-colonial literature, right? Like 
that is like the like the the theme of like that struggle of breaking off from something that's become you like it like it's not like that is the thing that like defines I think all like attempts at a post-colonial experience is that like I we're not like autonomous by ourselves and like trying to like force someone off of us it's like no we've already been so assimilated into a culture and this is about to be a very painful process because in the removal of this like occupying power like a little bit of ourselves is about to be like taken away too yeah almost like um like like those kids who divorce their parents um I mean that's probably actually a patronizing comparison uh okay so just to clarify because obviously this is a um predominantly fan fiction based podcast Mm -hmm. um and the reason I wanted to speak to you is that my husband is an adorable nerd and occasionally goes online and googles my name like a creep and then he (laughs) sifts through I I presume he doesn't show me the bad stuff he finds for Galaplacidia um but he sifts through and he finds things that he thinks I would like and he sent me a tumblr post that you had written and it was in response to the dad says bonus episode and in the dad says bonus episode I talked a lot about um about how if Draco is a Nazi analogy uh, figure, then the way that his forgiveness works in Down and Out Fix like doesn't match up with the historical context of the Nazis. And you mm-hmm. had written this just like really beautiful, eloquent Tumblr post about um, what was it? It was it was about the idea. I th- this is what I took from it that um, that forgiveness was like as random as violence like who gets forgiven who gets given grace after crimes um and you were talking of crimes of a colonial nature is kind of just up to circumstances is that about right is that kind of what you were saying yeah and and it had come off kind of like reading one harry potter for the first time and then like getting into thick and seeing this like character that a lot of people gravitate towards despite him being you know like a bona fide wizard nazi yeah like and and for me right like i i guess i lucked out because most of the fics that i had read weren't like infantilizing that or minimizing that like a lot of the first dreary fics i read were like these intense philosophical deep dives into like what it means for a character to be like rehabilitable um and but then right also for me like i live in a place where that was occupied by like imperial japan right and like can i just clarify sorry i need to clarify your history here so so when was the spanish-american war like roughly what decade of centuries are we talking yeah so sorry let me just like make sure that I'm not like spewing misinformation right so (laughs) I just like because like these are things that I internally know and yet it's the same thing when you're like double checking that four plus four equals eight you're just like let me make sure that um, this is like accurate right so yeah okay so in in 1901 was when we officially were ceded to America right because like uh the Spanish-American War ended in 1898 so there was like a a year gap where we were in like imperial transition 
Right. So we were under the Spanish first for like a good while. So and really, we're talking it's indigenous people having full sway, then the Spanish from around like what the 1500s, 1600s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Magellan. Sure. So like Magellan came and then like colonization came like right after. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I think he'd actually died while he was like going around the world. I don't think he made it all the way oh, around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, the the Filipinos got him, and we're we're, we're <laughs> proud of that. <laughs> we we love that for us because there are like Austronesian relatives, right? And there's like a huge focus <laughs> in Guam, and it's kind of just that, that like Indigenous Islander solidarity. Like, dang, we didn't get him, but you guys did, and we love that. <laughs> like collectively for the Pacific, right? Um, yeah. So it so Guam became like a trading post, and then. Uh, so really, like, it wasn't, well, obviously it was violent, right? Because there was, like, conquistadors and, like, Catholicism and, like, wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but after they were here, it was very much, like, they didn't have, like, right? Like, Spanish conquistador power is not at the same scale as, like, U.S. naval era power, yeah. right? Like, at the end of the Spanish-American War, like, there was a clearly, like, a bigger baddie. Um, and, and it's like, and it's like, oh, like this is like colonialism on steroids, right? So it's like the so the violence is doubled, and kind of like the industrialism is doubled, and even like the racism is doubled. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean to to give some context on the Spanish, um, the Spanish are, are at their peak in the 1500s, and then it is downhill for Spain basically from there. And so I can imagine that if you're a Spanish colony in, in the 1800s, like they're doing their best, but they they have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, whereas yeah, I can imagine then the Americans show up and they are like they are a, an ascendant empire. Um, my question I have is um, so what was the what's the kind of political reason America wants Guam? Like, is it because it's near other stuff or is it like for resources? Yeah, it was, it was definitely like military strategical location, like right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look at the, the first time Americans are here, like the context is like explicitly military, right? Mm -hmm. Like their first, I mean, even, even their, the first reason that they, came here even before they started building um towns and you know infrastructure it was a naval post first so it was like a small little navy post it was kind of like guam is in this natural current that kind of like allows you to stop here and then go off into like asia right so continental asia so Mm -hmm. we're close to kind of japan continental china indonesia the philippines so it's like a natural resting stop yeah, and it's uh, in this time period, right? Um, so the the Chinese Empire is starting to crumble. It crumbles officially in 1911, and uh, sorry, I was giving context. And uh, everyone wants a piece of China, so I can imagine that it'd be it'd be convenient to, you know, invade and oppress a island, a group of islands nearby, so that you could invade and oppress uh, oppress China also, right? Yeah, and it and it makes like unfortunately, right? It like it makes sense if you look at the east-west like convergence of where your where that turf war is going to happen right. like it's not going to happen in america because like america's like you know thousands of miles from continental asia mm-hmm. but in between there's all of these islands kind of like a natural nation state bridge right if you're thinking in like an empire mm-hmm. way 
So it's like, oh yeah, obviously on our way to this other, what is going to become like the only other major superpower that can threaten us. Um, we should probably occupy all these islands in the meantime so that they don't have that leverage over us. Right. So it was like very swift, right? And like for us, like living in like the Pacific as indigenous people, like nation states were never our worldview or goal. Mm -hmm. Like we were interconnected regions. We constantly traded between each other. We're seafaring people, but mm -hmm. we're not like a conquesting people mm -hmm. like we we kind of left that shit behind when we left the continents we were like you know what let's go settle the islands do our thing as islanders trade kind of like this is our peak form like minding our business and doing our thing on a smaller scale right. like we like evolved from like the continental like goals of conquest mm -hmm. but then obviously that was like thrusted upon us once like the turf wars in the pacific began so that is the context of like my reality. And so really like anything that America has been involved in since 1901, Guam has been caught in the crossfires of. So whatever wars America has been fighting since 1901, Guam has like, as a subject has been somehow caught in that like greater context. That's fascinating and bizarre. Um... Right. I mean, the idea that you'd have to fight in various different, you know, like the Iraq war or something is just so strange. Um, OK, wait, let's let's bring it back to Harry Potter a little. Uh, I, I wanted to do an episode on colonialism anyway. Um, and then when I saw your Tumblr post, I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could persuade ships to give me a morning um, because I'm I grew up in um, I grew up in Britain. And um, I already said this to you, Shibs, but when I read Harry Potter, like it is it is true to my experience. Obviously, I didn't have magic, but I went to boarding schools. It it feels comforting because I recognize it. And I'm I'm sort of uh, filled with <laughs> sort of tangled feelings about um, Harry Potter and colonialism because it's not very um, present in the text. But uh, whenever you have a, you know, a British text becoming so universally read, mm -hmm. it's got to be tangled up in colonialism, right? Because it, it, it is in itself like kind of a form of cultural colonialism. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you can, I don't know if that's too simple because I think it doesn't have like that aim. It's not like J.K. Rowling is sitting around being like, I will culturally colonize Guam. <laughs> But I, I don't know. I, I just think I just think there's a lot to unpack, Ari, Harry Potter and Empire, right? I so there was this like I got really okay. Like I read I got really into the crown, right? As all of like American citizens who are like obsessed with England, right? Yeah. And there's this article that Laurie Penny wrote I, called I read this. I read this article. The long con of Britishness. Describe it. I actually had a lot of feelings about it. I'm glad you brought this up. Go on. And like, I'm, and like, as a person who's like not British, right. I'm reading this and I'm like, Oh, this is so like, she, she describes like, I, I mean, there are several things that I highlighted in this article because I felt like it helped me think about all of the questions that you had about like Harry Potter and colonialism and kind of like what she calls um, the world's collective imaginative sandbox and like Britain. And like she says, every nation state is 90% fictional. 
Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that like Britain exists for the Anglo-American world, right? Like who's been plagued by Anglophilia ever since we tried, or not we, but ever since like America tried to like rid itself of like the motherland, but then like really actually just ended up doing it on a larger scale. Like in general, at, like the fall of the British empire didn't really, like as they lost influence on the world, like they turned to kind of exporting their the culture itself and kind of like this idea that any stories that come out of Britain like can't be apolitical because if any fictional text is going to be political, it's going to be the thing that was built by an empire kind of like scrambling for relevance, you know? And like, even though Harry Potter isn't like, like what you said, like an explicitly colonial text, it's participating in this like sexy revamp of like charming British-ism that kind of sells you the fantasy of Britain, not as it actually is, but the fantasy that exists in like non-British people's minds that like, Britain is not like a place with like poverty and brown people. It's the place where like, you know, wizards and tea and like castles are. And it's like, you know, like for me, like when I was reading that article, it made so much sense because in this almost like reverse attack of exoticism, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is how the Orientalists felt when they like, used people's homes as like projections of their like emotional and artistic playgrounds like it's like the most like insane thing that like for me halfway across the world from like a little small island full of like all of this like the cultural zeitgeist center of the world sometimes that I could just like project all of my fantasies and kind of like use it as like a backdrop for my escapism right and that like and that like Britain like or like the UK, like the, it, it like benefits off of that relationship of like escapism that they're selling to people around the world because they lost like military power. And now instead they have like cultural power. I definitely drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, it's, um, it's a, almost kind of a difficult thing for me to talk about because, um, y- you know, I think you, you have to, um, make space for the fact that you can have intellectual opinions that don't match up with your emotional reactions right mm-hmm. i i grew up in uh, a situation that is very similar to the the fantasy version of britain that we export right mm-hmm. and uh therefore it's nice for me that mm-hmm. you understand like that you know what my education was a little bit like i can just be like oh i went to boarding school it's kind of like harry potter and then you know shorthand that's nice for me but then again it is also this it troubles me i'm like why don't i know what your education was like do you see what i mean i don't know yeah. it, it's just um yeah i mean we enjoy watching the crown in downton abbey uh and i don't I, I'm not into um, saying like that you can't enjoy things just because there's uh, troubling elements to them, but uh, it does. I don't know. It it it's something else that I've noticed in fandom is that um, you know it feels like an advantage if you are familiar with Britishisms, right? To be writing in this particular fandom in Drary because yeah. 
people will be like, oh, like I like this piece, but it, you know, it really bothered me that um, the character kept saying ass instead of ass or whatever, right? And um, that's just like a <laughs> like a weird, tiny, stupid privilege um, among many others that you can see in fanfic, uh, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Like, and and it's so funny because me like reading like not even just dabbling but like voraciously consuming what is basically like you know british cultural self-aggrandizement right like in the form of like harry potter fan fiction which is really just like like for me right like like the obsession with this world that might as well be like you know middle earth and star trek like to me like so far removed from reality like it's very obvious when i that as a person who participates in fandom i'm like on the outs like i'm not i'm not participating in a way that like i'm not looking for reflections of myself if that makes sense like i like i'm not there's nothing like satisfactory in in sort of in terms of like representation or whatever like it's definitely purely escapism and it's interesting too because it's insidious because it's not like like what you said like there's no it's not reciprocal like it's not reciprocated at all like there will there will never be like the same amount of interest for what goes on in like the pacific theater like even when you just think of like war movies like growing up like the war actually happened in the Pacific, mm-hmm. like on our islands, right? Like World War II, though, growing up, like even as someone who grew up and was helped, like like was raised by my grandma, who was very much alive during the war. And like, they were here when we were carpet bombed. They were here when like the Japanese put um, Pacific Islanders and like specifically Chamorros here in like concentration camps. Like we, they, they were alive for all of that. I grew up and like the like World War II is not like this distant, like, Mm -hmm. film reality that it is for like Americans because Mm -hmm. for like Americans like it didn't touch them like they were deployed out there but it didn't like invade their homes right I mean it did if you were Japanese American but uh yeah oh yeah exactly right but okay so specifically right when I say Americans obviously well maybe obvious to everyone but yeah like (laughs) white right like I'm talking about white people even when I'm talking about Harry Potter and and Britain and like escapism I'm obviously talking about white people right yes and like for someone who is like has been sold like the white fantasy and like white innocence and kind of like white grief around the world's biggest like events and has never been like asked to empathize with everybody else even though I am everybody else like it's so interesting like the stories that I sought to even find comfort in because nobody was writing about like how we recovered from the war in fact growing up I don't like this is going to sound crazy, right? But growing up, I straight up thought that World War II only happened in Europe. But I thought the war that happened here, like 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 Japan being here and like America being here, like I in my mind, like that's like a diff, that's like world, that's like a war that was in a different font. But when people are talking about World War II, they're talking about like specifically like the European theater. Because our textbooks treated us in the Pacific theater as like a footnote. So like in my mind, I just filed it away as like, oh yeah, there were like some battles fought here, but like the real war, like the capital WW 
you know, Roman numeral two war, like that happened over there. Like those guys really had it bad. Do you, um, are you familiar with an essay by Jamaica Kincaid called On Seeing England for the First Time? No, but I love her work in general. Like, um, could you, could you give me like a synopsis? Of yes, that? yes. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. But Jamaica, Jamaica Kincaid uh, is a writer or was a writer. I don't know if she's still alive from Antigua. And uh, she, she's great. Uh, I really love her. She's, she's very angry, uh, but in this beautiful, clear, simple, clean way. Um, it, weirdly, she reminds me most, if I had to pick an author, she reminded me of, of um, the World War One poetry of Siegfried Sassoon, right? It has that same, like, just, just clear eyed rage to it. And she writes this essay, uh, and it's not long, it's like nine, 10 pages long, um, called On Seeing England for the first time and it's about her education and about how um she just she just read all these books from England all these English books and poems like for instance she she talks a lot about how she read um the Wordsworth poem about the daffodils uh I can't remember what it's called um I wandered lonely as a cloud that one anyway and um and she was like, but I've never seen a daffodil or all these poems and uh, stories where women walk around at dusk. And she was like, what is dusk? Mm. Like where I live, it gets dark in a second, right? It's full sun and then it is full dark. There is no such thing as dusk. Mm. And she, you know, only read British literature and was kind of told that she must love it. And then finally she went to England and she went there with a friend of hers who was English, who was like, I want to show you all the things I love about England. And Jamaica Kincaid, I, I want to, let me see if I can just find, I've got it up here. Let me see if I can find like the bit she, um, okay. So her friend is talking about England and she says, it was not at that moment that I wished every sentence, everything I knew that began with England would end with a, and then it just all died. We don't know how it just all died. <laughs> which I think is so great um and yeah she was like and she just hated it she just hated everything about England and the more her friend tried to be like but look at the look at the head look at the daffodils the more she was like I just hate everything about it and um she she describes this feeling of like of like as a child it's as if her head is in a vice and mm. the vice is holding her head against a window and inside she watches British culture and she can't look away and she has to look in but she's not inside the room she's outside the room and that's how it feels wow that's that like <laughs> you know when you like have a revelation or you think about someone who said something that you've like you couldn't articulate for a long for like your whole life that is like it for me like she, like yes and I had always connected with her because of that like anger and I like it's funny because for me that always feels like my dominant emotion and I had, I remember reading her works for the first time and like immediately identifying with that and so now I like I can't wait to like read that essay after this because that like that description of like being unable to look away from something because it's the something that like taught you how to like, it was like your first reference for escapism and beauty and like literature and art in the first place. 
but you've never been the one in the center mm-hmm. and you're kind of like trapped and like in a similar way right like I I wonder if that's how I would feel if I ever went to like England because for example like when I was six it was like 9-11 was happening and I was with my mom on the way to like visit my aunties in living in California and six-year-old me has this like memory that is probably mostly made up from pictures and like stories but like in my mind I went to Disneyland for the first time and probably the last time and it was like everything about America made sense to like six-year-old me and kind of like going to Disneyland and kind of this like technicolor dream world of like wow this is the states this is America and then coming back home and like holding that in my mind and I didn't go to the states until like 10 11 plus years later for college and it was so funny the the immediate disenchantment I was probably only in America for like a month and it already was like oh right this is not that like America isn't Disneyland even Disneyland isn't Disneyland like this is a facade like it's literally a place that tries to make people forget that this was indigenous land like you go to America and you're meant to perceive it as like a blank canvas where like it's the place where like anybody's dreams are meant to be projected on like the blank slate that is America even though it isn't a blank slate and it's like definitely there are like multiple skeletons in everyone's closet but like the way that even its cities are built like you're meant to see gas stations strip malls colleges like you know skyscrapers and like wherever the indigenous people are like cornered in a reservation so that you can pretend they're disappearing like that's how america is set up and like the difference the like oh my gosh the, the kind of like bottoming out that that was for me as someone who was born with like the american dream so fully like dreamy in my mind and like having a taste of it as a child like in the formative years where you're like deciding what's beautiful and worth like like escapism right the thing that like escapism is for a kid who's like magic like like exactly like magic like like and the fact that it had never occurred to me as a kid to consider like my places and my people as like worthy of escapism or like romanticism that like that was never something that was offered to us like no movies no children's books had us in it like that was never going to be an option right it's like whatever america fed us that was the option especially when you're in oral tradition like what books are do you have at your service what films do you have at your service right so to finally like get older and peek behind the curtain and just be like angry like I remember I spent all of my college experience just like slightly pissed (laughs) but like also slightly like enthralled with literature because I went to school for literature so it's so funny that like Jamaica talks about that dissonance that exists in every colonized person that can't help but be fascinated and intrigued and even a little bit like wooed by the colonizer's art like it just it's like it's like I will probably like not get over like Jerry for a while like and and I'm reading it and I know that I'm participating in a little bit of my own erasure and it's like the cost that I pay for entertainment and for escapism 
And it's so funny to me when people talk about like problematic literature, right? Or like, you know, you guys should only read things that are like diverse. (laughs) I'm like, since when has that ever been an option for like, I don't know, millions of people? Like, like it's, it just feels very performative to me because it's like, if anything, I'm going to mine this problematic shit for all it's worth. Because if there's anything the empire owes me, it just <laughs> them on my terms. Do you know what I mean? Like that sounds so like probably circular, like the mental gymnastics that one has to get to get there. But like I've gotten there. Like that's why I feel like I can read like Harry Potter fan fiction and not like want to die of embarrassment every time I do it. Because I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> If anyone gets to have this, it's me. (laughs) I agree, right? You pay the price. Uh, Bell Hooks talks about um, this. She talks about this when she's talking about um, watching watching old films. And she Mm -hmm. says that when she's watching uh, an old film, uh, and for people who don't know, Bell Hooks, a kind of awesome black feminist writer for, I think she's like a third, second wave feminist, second whatever 70s I think is her time anyway and uh she talks about um how when she's watching a film from the past the only way she can watch it and enjoy it is if she completely disengages politically she has to cease to become a black woman because you cannot watch a black woman uh sorry you cannot be a black woman and watch an old film without encountering trauma and she wants to be able to watch the old films therefore she abandons her you know identity when she consumes the you know these these films mm-hmm. um something that made me sad about jamaica kincaid's essay um is that i i have spent a lot of time studying the british literary canon and i love it i love it i think it's beautiful i think there's so many wonderful things in it and the idea that someone could be forced to read it to the extent that now they just hate it and wish everything about it would just die is devastating, right? I mean, it's devastating to Jamaica Kincaid, obviously, in a much bigger, more real way. But it's also devastating when I think about Wordsworth. I don't think Wordsworth wanted Jamaica Kincaid to be forced to read his poetry Mm. instead of her, you know, her own culture's poetry and to grow to hate him right that's most most good artists they write from a place of of compassion and generosity of spirit and therefore the whole way in which their works are delivered to you know colonized countries goes fundamentally against what a good writer i imagine or hope would want for their legacy Mm. yeah i don't know does that make sense yeah no i it's so funny because I feel like that is probably the goal of post-colonial movements, right? Is to get to a place where we're on equal terms with other culture creators. So that when I'm when I finally come to you on my terms, it's not out of subjugation, but of like autonomy and like free exchange. Because it's like, to me, right, like the idea that I could appropriate culture from my own island neighbors is like laughable to me, right? But because of the forced colonial constructs that were like thrust upon us, turning our islands into nation states, we now have like political context and like power dynamics 
that didn't exist in my grandma's time. That now makes it so that like knowledge sharing that used to be this really like free, incredible mix of like information and resources. It now like comes with a price tag and at a cost. And like, this is something that I feel like people don't understand like the weight of colonialism on even just like art and enjoyment, right? Because people's arguments are like, dude, just let people enjoy things. And I'm like, you don't understand the cost of like enjoyment. Like that, that was robbed from us. Like we don't want to hate other artists. And I feel like, like what you said is so correct. Like, like the insidious of empire is that it even robs us of like pleasure and like the freedom that is supposed to be inherent in like sharing beautiful things and that being like infested with power dynamics and like greed and you know like supremacy like yeah that fucking sucks you know because then it's like it riddles you with all this unnecessary guilt that shouldn't be there when you're meeting someone else's art and it's funny to me that like fan very nature of being like free right and written by just like hobbyists and not people who are trying to make money off of their things and written by you know mostly women and like for a lot a lot of that being like queer women like that equalizing playing field is, is going to be really attractive and appealing for people looking for escapism that mm-hmm. doesn't have like as much of a weight when you're interacting with something as intimidating as like the literary canon. And this is coming from someone who will read British literature anyway. Like even though I know what it what cost it comes at. But like the fact that like fandom has kind of become this democratization of art and information that like I get a say in shit that I usually don't get a say in. Well, like that's, I that's would like, never have heard of you, right? I would never have come across. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. You see what I mean? Like, and I, I, that's something I love about fan fiction is that occasionally I'll read, I'll read stories. I have to say, I'm, I'm not really reading very much fan fiction at the moment, but um, I, I'll read a story where it's, it's written by someone in and English as their second language. And the characters are, you can just tell that this person is intelligent and you can tell that they're thoughtful and you know the pacing is amazing and the plot is amazing but the the writing is it's a second language you know it's not it would not be published and I just think what a privilege that I get to read that because there's no way HarperCollins is going to publish that book yeah I would never find that I would never find that perspective I would never find the perspective of someone in in India you know writing about and also I mean the fact that it is in this um you know it's the fact that we're all playing with the same materials you know within one fandom mm-hmm. um it's so fascinating to me I have, I have a friend um I have a friend who he's he's like very um establishment I mean he's very thoughtful but you know he has like a PhD in English from Oxford and I was asking to I was talking to him about about the canon and the diversification of the canon and he said that one of his problems with the way we talk about the diversification of the canon is that he was like I think you have to think about who is reading and what and, and what they have to say about it and he was like I would I would much rather hear what a like underprivileged uh, woman of color has to say about Tess of the D'Urbervilles than I would rather listen to someone from Eton 
talking about Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie mm-hmm. because it's it is about you know who is speaking as well so even though you know Harry Potter Drary it's a bunch of white dudes uh you know it's so fascinating to get to see so many different types of opinions on this one thing even mm-hmm. if even if the center we're looking at is a you know white british kind of imperialist force the fact that we're hearing from people who i don't get to hear from otherwise is is so freeing it's so exciting mm-hmm. and and i love that like <laughs> there was this thing that i'd said that i mean on tumblr of all places right but i I'm so interested in what you said, everybody having the same tools and therefore getting to use it in like an unlimited amount of combinations, right? And it's like the thing of like derivative, you know, fanfic that is like very specific to the type of literature that it is, that it could never be published because it's not like original, right? Or at least like, you know, copyright shit and all that. Right. So, but because of that, like that limitation that is inherent, all of a sudden frees up a million possibilities of this one thing and the one thing gets to be the meeting place and like for me I talked about thick some thick that I read as like Socratic dialogues dis- disguised as romance stories yeah. and this idea that like people come here to talk about their philosophical and like emotional cultural dilemmas and it's accessible because they don't have to do the work of like getting someone to want to pay attention to their stories, right? Like, like, I'll be honest, like I write creative nonfiction and even though I know I'm good at it, (laughs) like, no, like in my lifetime, I don't know how likely it is that anyone's going to want to give a shit about these very specific, like Micronesian experience. However, all of the cultural and like historical weight of my reality, if I were to put that in a place where millions of people already are, right? right. Archive of my own, right? Or like fandom. And just implement, like import all of those same thoughts, all of those same questions. I all of a sudden have an audience. Like I all of a sudden get to be part of a conversation that, I'll, that, that I'm very much barred out of in reality. And like for me, that's mostly now, like my, my, my fanfic, like, experience is very curated like I'm interested specifically in fics that are that are wanting to do that like it's very clear at the beginning of the fic or whatever right mm-hmm. that this person has these things that they want to say and this is merely just a tool and like yeah, yeah the canon matters and like the story arc of these people matter but it matters in that it's like a vehicle for them to say something that they very clearly like need to like tease out um, something about the human experience or even culture or politics. I completely agree with all of that. And I think you've, you've phrased that beautifully. And, and the, the first thing I thought of is um, the, the latest lettered um, fic. Are you reading? Do you oh read? my God. Thank you for bringing that up because I was going to bring it up and I want to hear your thoughts because I am like obsessed with lettered in general, but specifically by the grace. Like I am like fully obsessed. So okay. go ahead. Let me give some context in case people don't know. So lettered um, A for me is like God tier writer. I mean, she is, she's just, 
in ah, uh, she's so good. Um, but by the grace is a fic which is um essentially political discourse, sort of thinly masked as a romance story, like you said. Mm-hmm. And basically, the premise is um you know it's a few years after the war, and um there's just been a referendum on whether to lift the veil, aka reveal the Muggle world, uh, reveal the Wizarding world to the Muggle world. And I have to tell you, I read the first two chapters of it and then I stopped and I don't know if I'm going to finish reading it because it upset me so much, this fic. Uh, mm-hmm. It really got to me. I don't, I, I don't, I haven't figured out why. Let it has this capability. Um, she, she is um, so emotionally poignant. She really packs a punch uh, that <laughs> some of her fics have just really messed me up. Uh, what do you think of it? I was so just like satisfied because and like and like like, granted I'm like probably a very specific like niche of like fic writers where I'm like like I'm new to fanfic and I'm specifically here for political discourse like (laughs) shut up like a lot of people are here to like you know read pleasure and it's like for me unfortunately or maybe not unfortunately like pleasure is political discourse Mm -hmm. so like reading the and like okay for me the reason why I was so delighted reading by the grace is because it it's like that thing that letter does that I feel like she really excels at which is like this intersection of the political and the personal that those two things are not disconnected and that you can't just like opt out of politics Mm -hmm. as a person who exists in a structure and that has had to survive that structure and like in the fic, there is this recurring motif and it's called like the Timothy tree. Um, and I'm not going to like say anything spoilery or spoilery about it, but Harry and all of his like anxiety that he's very much riddled with in this fic, he kind of fixates it, fixates on it as this place that like exists outside of his own personal and political d- dilemmas. And the tree is kind of this place where he often has big realizations about, you know, whether or not he has decided that Draco is hot or whether or not <laughs> decided that he like wants to be an activist again or is like sick of this shit and shouldn't have to be asked to like die again for everyone again. And it's like this like place that serves as this site for all of his rambling thoughts of like, first of all, fuck this, that this is happening all over again. I thought we got rid Like, you know, like I thought when we killed the big baddie, like everything is supposed to fall in place after that. And usually in dreary fix, like that is the case. Mm -hmm. It's like post-war, people are clubbing or every, you know, like Hermione's, you know, the freaking minister. And, and like, and like good cops are a thing, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's like, we know that they were just a bit bad, but like we solved the world's problems and now we can just like be in romance and obviously letter is like no fuck that that's not a thing reverse racism is not a thing like like if anybody's suffering it's the people who have to live through all of this and then probably have to live through it again because that's how history goes Mm -hmm. and like in this thing like harry is having this realization that he doesn't want to have that the redundancy of empire the redundancy of like political violence and kind of like for someone who's been colonized like I so identify with that disenchantment and actually it's the first thing that made me want to read fanfic because like for context I have never read Harry Potter I read it for the first time in May of last year 
what what <laughs> yeah i was like out i was very much on the outs like yeah you grow up with the movies but they're just like movies like i, for me, like, I have I was to interject I have to interject. You must have been very taken aback by this turn of events. Because if you're someone who's reached adulthood without reading Harry Potter, you must be under the impression that you're not a Harry Potter person. This is like a shift in identity, surely. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, right? Because it's like, because it's like, I thought the movies were like cool and like midnight premieres are like a thing that you get to participate with your friends who are obsessed. Mm -hmm. But like it was very much like I was like adjacent. Like if anything, like I was very much obsessed with like Lord of the Rings, you know? And my first like MLM pairing was probably like Legolas and Aragorn, which like ooh, let ooh. like I should have seen the foreshadowing events that Jerry was going <laughs> to happen, right? Because you know, it's like okay, should have seen that shit coming. But for me, like this is all very recent, and so which is why the escapism and like the emotional shit, like it's all very fresh. And the thing that I latched onto in the books, in the problematic books that I actually felt we've done really well is book five when Harry has his disenchantment and he like trashes Dumbledore's office. And like, I can't even explain to the, to you the like euphoria of just like me in that moment reading a scene that felt very meta for everything that's happened after post J.K. Rowling being like a turf asshole, right? Right. Like for in the middle of this book that is about magic and kind of like getting to escape your abusive childhood and hoping that the magic world has something to offer you only to realize that the magic world is the reason why you had an abusive childhood and the magic world actually doesn't have any escapism to offer you because you because it has the same racist structures that the non-magical world has right so like me well and like for me right like harry's in book five is like at his most angry and like for me as a colonized person in lockdown and like the political hellscape of these times, right? I don't even have to say these times, like the <laughs> shitty times that is this decade. Like I'm sitting there and I'm like identifying with this like angsty, you know, hormonal kid. And he's like trashing this old man's office. And I'm just like, dude, yes, this is the climax of the series. I mean, and like people can talk about whatever climax they want. Like, obviously you can argue for whatever like big moment. But for me, that was like my big moment where I was like, Yes, this is, I get to decide that this is a series about how magic and like the fantasy of whatever, you know, like empire, like it's going to be tainted and it's actually not fully like pure. And like, and like, it's the, it's the same disenchantment that comes with growing up and realizing that like, but, but even more than like the disenchantment of growing up it's a disenchantment of like being a colonized person and realizing as you get older that like all of the things that you love and enjoy are tainted by like structures that don't actually value you. And so for me to like have that moment and like be like, hell yeah, I'm going to project all of my shit onto this book five Harry and then get really into political discourse <laughs> that like bounces off of that. And then to read by the grace, I was like, yes, this is extremely my shit. Like, if anything's going to be my shit, it is this. <laughs> um, so, but how do you therefore feel about Draco Malfoy, right? I mean, why why are you drawn to, to Drarry as opposed to, I don't know, Harry and Ron, which would be, I think, uh, maybe a less troubling ship for you? Yeah, or like, or like for example, like, I read Unwanted. Um, That's the Ebadel one about um, abortion, yes? 
and like specifically like Hermione and Harry's relationship from that was like so moving and touching to me and if I and if I didn't see them as siblings I could be like oh that's like a healthy relationship that is like yeah so much more worth you know trying to like reconcile with like a crush that you have on someone who's like low-key was an ethno-nationalist you know mm-hmm. but I specifically right and like I've thought about this a lot and like I think I it's not that I have this natural empathy for Draco but I like the mechanisms and like the narrative like the like it's just more narratively compelling to me and like the fact that with his character you get to have more difficult conversations and like and and maybe me being like a a a person that looks for catharsis more than they do specifically like fluff pleasure like I think like because catharsis is why I come to story I like that when he's there I'm meant to like confront all of the things that I would like to believe about people who have done me wrong like culturally right and like and this is coming from someone who like has like my grandmother's sisters like intermarried with like Japanese like during the war and like these were people that were like like harming our people Mm -hmm. killing them raping right right and this is something that like allows me to kind of like safely interact with that without being Uh re-traumatized and in a fictional setting I can think about like the randomness of grace and like the randomness of forgiveness and that like people's baseline humanity and goodness is not actually up for debate but our relationship to change is very much up for debate like like the the choices that we make like we have we have autonomy over that like I'm not and and like I think I like him as a character because he forces me to ask questions about like who's allowed to enjoy things and like create things that I enjoy because like he kind of in his own microcosm of a character represents my relationship to art that isn't indigenous and it's like am I allowed to seek pleasure from the crown you know am I allowed to like dabble in a little bit of self erasure if at the end of the day like it's not like it's for this greater goal of like recognizing that like people and circumstances can change and like that's a reality and I think like also on a very like (laughs) superficial level like I like being able to like poke fun at this like posh elite person that is supposed to be like on top but has very much been like knocked down a couple bars and maybe that's just like (laughs) me projecting on like what I wish I could do for to like all the white boys whose attention I saw in college but it's just like maybe this is like one big validation fantasy but um yeah a lot of a lot of my a lot of my like needs are met within that pairing within that like tension that makes a lot of sense that he kind of serves as as you say like a he almost serves to represent like the fact that it's almost as if 
Yes, the crown is empire and bad. However, there is something redeemable about it if it makes me happy. And that's a little bit the relationship that Harry ends up having with Draco and most Rari fixed. Draco is bad. He represents something bad. But mm-hmm. if he makes Harry happy, Harry deserves mm-hmm. to have him. Yep. And and I and I think like the personal and political should be something that like people who are marginalized, like they should get to decide those terms for themselves. And like I and like would I say that of a white person? Probably not. But do I feel like it's what we're owed in terms of like reparations that we'll never get? Like honestly, yeah. Like it feels kind of like freeing to say that. But can I yeah. can I just clarify what you mean by that? So what you're saying is that so people of color should be able to to determine what they want to consume on their terms. And then you said, would I say that of a white person? I'm not sure. So as in what what do you mean by that? I feel so like, for example, right, like in the same way that I don't think it's possible for like a black woman to culturally appropriate from a white woman if she dyes her hair blonde. But in the same sense, I like am not ever trying to see like a white woman wearing like Bantu knots or like, you know, cornrows. Like it's one of those things where like the power dynamic is already there and it like explicitly sets the parameters for that interaction and that exchange. Now, do I think that like there are very specific contexts where those things are given and exchanged freely? Like, dude, obviously, like I live in like the kind of crosshairs of Asia and America and the Pacific and like our cultures are blending and interchanging all the time. And like, I think so, like with all of that said, I probably will never try and attempt to speak for like white people's enjoyment of white art because I'm like like that's not even a thing that I probably will ever want to like think a lot about but in terms of like for me someone that like can't escape this even if I tried like I like to be I like to think that this is something that I can control and therefore I get to like have like me participating in art and enjoying it like and getting pleasure from bad art because I come from this position of like, I'll never get to be the one exerting that power dynamic over someone else. Right. Yeah. Sorry. That was like a really like muddled statement and I probably could condense it better, but I guess that's just what I was trying to get at. I think it sounds like a a tangled bunch of thoughts. Um, but that, I mean, I think it, I agree with you. Um, I'm, I'm not really here for, and I think actually, uh, in terms of like work culture, I do think we're actually moving past, oh, you can't watch Love Actually because it's sexist. I don't think we're in that place anymore. I think we're much more in the watch whatever you want, read whatever you want, just, uh, you know, if you are benefiting from the power systems that this media represents, think about that consciously. Um, yeah. Sounds like yeah, what you're yeah. saying, roughly. It's so much more condensed, but exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that for me, in my fix... I think Draco usually serves as a cipher for like class guilt and white guilt. Mm. Um, And I'm thinking about this at the moment because I'm I'm reading Teenage Wasteland Um, at the time of recording. I've just finished recording episode uh, chapter six. Um, Have you read have you read Teenage Wasteland? Yes. And I love it. Thank you. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) Wasteland is all about guilt. Um, I mean, all of all my things are about guilt. Right. Mm -hmm. I think. That's probably fair to say because they're all about Draco and I don't think Draco deserves Harry unless he feels really fucking guilty. So um, 
Teenage Wasteland in particular, um, I think that what Draco and that, the, the whole um, Draco and religion thread, I mm. think comes from my sort of um, moral terror, which I teach history. And so I'm very aware of the fact that when the British Empire was um, spreading and going on at its peak, uh, I think people like me, I think if I had been me in 1880, I probably would have been super pro empire, I think, because intelligent, thoughtful people were. And that terrifies me because it means, and you know, we all know this, that intelligence does not match up with morality. Thoughtfulness does not match up with morality. And you can, you can use your intelligence, in fact, to sort of get into some pretty scary moral um convictions and you know you read there's a john ruskin speech uh do you, do you know who john ruskin is i don't okay he's a piece of shit um and he and sorry brief anecdote about john ruskin he, so he's an art critic he's an art critic very good art critic uh very influential uh in the late late uh 19th century the reason he's a piece of shit apart from other things is he married this very pretty 16 year old um girl and then was so horrified to discover that she had pubic hair that he banished her from his home and shamed her publicly for her, for being repulsive uh and it ruined her life so actually i think maybe she remarried later but the point is what a shit um and John Ruskin gives this speech in Oxford in, I think, the 1870s, uh, where, you know, he very, very sincerely is like, we must spread the light. Like, if you are the light at the center of the earth, you have a responsibility to spread it to the places that are dark. And he means it. And that terrifies me because mm. what what am I, what am, what is the equivalent now, right? I, I try to be thoughtful um but the the thing that history teaches us is that is that it's very very easy to be in the wrong um mm. and you know i think about it in terms of america and democracy um you know i can't tell i i think democracy seems like a good system but um to what extent have I just been brainwashed by hundreds of years of enlightenment thinking? Is it possible that America being like, we should spread democracy places is evil? I think probably, probably, um, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's like, what else is there like that? And so for me, Draco in um, Teenage Wasteland is a kind of way of exploring some of that because I think that um, my Draco at least is someone who, um, when he was a teenager, thought he was doing the right thing mm -hmm. and and thought it seemed fairly straightforward and simple and then realizes not only that he was doing the wrong thing but that he can never again trust that he knows what the right thing is which mm -hmm. is how i feel like i i hold most of my morals lightly because i've watched them change over the last 10 years right i mean uh not that i'm i was a child 10 years ago roughly but um <laughs> still you know I think living in the time that we are living in earlier in the in this conversation, we talked about how 2008, everyone doesn't believe in color. 2014, everyone suddenly realizes that actually it's still a thing. I think that um, we've had a bit of a moral awakening in the last 10 years, and that is great, but also destabilizing. And it makes for Draco Malfoy being a very good way of exploring, I think, that moral uncertainty for me, at least. So it's a really yeah. 
different a different um he serves very different purposes for you and me I think yeah and it's crazy that even with him serving these very two different purposes there's still like a narrative entry point for me and you to like come to the same big on opposite sides and and like participate in the story and like still get like by the end of the story the like rounded out arc of all characters involved even though your like self-insert or entry point was like completely different and I feel like that to me is what makes like a good one writer but also just to like like there's this part in in Teenage Wasteland where Draco says it but I feel like it's something that I identified with and it was like surprising but he's basically like reflecting on the fact that he was apologized to for the first time by um shit I'm, I'm blinking on her name oh Adelaide Adelaide yeah Adelaide and like she apologized to him obviously because she was cowed by like what Harry said and obviously Harry doesn't tell Draco this but but he's like in like high spirits right and Harry's like oh like what like what, you know like what's the good mood about and Draco says something like it was nice and I didn't need it but it was nice mm-hmm. that it had happened that this like this like act of grace that I didn't need from this person but like when I got it like it was pleasantly surprising in the greater context of things mm-hmm. and like my life events like I think of what your fic and like what Harry's like his philosophical and like moral dilemma that he's like I don't need this I I don't have like I don't need to fall in love with a person that is like riddled with trauma that is mixed up with mine Mm -hmm. but like that I get to have it that I get to have this act of grace like it is nice and like it's interesting like the word nice and just like the seemingly decorativeness of it that like it's an extra that some people get to have but is not necessarily like everybody gets to have it. Like it's definitely a want and not a need, but the fact that you could have wants and that is accessible to you when you're not used to getting that. And then like in Draco in this situation, right? Like he's been down and out for a while. Like he's not expecting good things. Mm -hmm. And I think for Harry, right? Like Harry identifies that because like, when has he ever been allowed to expect good things? Mm -hmm. And especially both of them are not expecting good things to come out of like a very, unideal relationship context Mm -hmm. and it's funny because like it condensed so much of what I feel about their story arc and kind of just like when people are writing out these characters and surprising grace and that like a very which is which can be a very like religious weighty word that people probably hate and for rightful reason if they're coming from a background of like Christian colonization uh you know, and like Catholic guilt, like, and all of the shit that comes with that. But the fact that like that idea doesn't belong to like Western religions, right? It's like a, it's like a universal human experience that you long for. And it's, and even the idea of like absolution when like Draco is in the church and and he asks Hermione, like, what is it like to be good? And she's like, you tell me. And like, did I like have a little moment where I got a little teary eyed? I was like, yeah. I was like, wow, look at me sympathizing with the enemy. Adorable <laughs> like, Nazi. I was like, that, that gala. <laughs> like, it's so funny because it's just like hilarious because it's like, I knew what I was in for, but it was still a surprisingly kind thing to 
to hear. And like what you were saying about, um, you know, reading Maurice or just like, I, we, we had had this conversation on Discord about like authors who are just like kind, like they're sharp, but they're kind and they offer you a little bit more optimism than your reality even allows for. Yeah. Like that's the shit that like matters to me because it's like, I know, like I live in a very pragmatic world. Like I'm literally an activist. Like I'm part of a decolonization movement. Like you can't get more grassroots than like the past, like my entire existence, you know, mm -hmm. like just like based on what my family's work is involved with. So like when I come to literature or even just like thick, and I find these stories that are meant to kind of like explore, I don't know, cross-cultural tension and like war stories. Cause it's like Harry Potter's war story and like all the stuff that comes out of it, like they're war stories. And like for someone who grew up in a war-torn place, but without war stories from the kids' perspectives, like, yeah, dude, I'm looking for one, self-insert and two, like hopeful, like, you know, like, pragmatic optimism or like optimistic realism whichever one you know like I'm looking for some kind of like respite that like we all know shit's bad we all know like political violence is redundant we all know we're probably going to live and die in bad systems that are bad and like hopefully we can make it a little bit better but like that hope of like a little bit better and like getting to have nice things. Like my whole thing, my mantra is like, dude, if I'm going to have a bad time, I might as well have a good time. Like, <laughs> I promise you that is like my like life motto. Cause I'm just like, like that, what that paradox is not very like neat, but it's neat enough. And it's doing the job so far in terms of like my art consumption, you know? Like, I, I admire that very much and I really really loved what you said in that original post about um about grace being random uh, I, I think it's such a a beautiful and true sentiment because the fact is sometimes people do really really bad things and are forgiven and sometimes people do only sort of bad things and aren't forgiven and mm -hmm. sometimes people don't do anything wrong at all and are punished and it's 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 this randomness and I think the question of deserving is so troubling Something I used to think about as a teenager was I was like, I wish, I wish, because I've always been riddled with guilt. Um, <laughs> that's my main thing. And I'm not Catholic, so I don't know where it comes from. Yeah, like, um, where I, once, I once was like complaining about my guilt to Feels for Breakfast, uh, who's another fanfic writer. And uh, I was like, by the way, I just want you to know, I haven't murdered someone. Like, I know that that's the level that this is at, but I, <laughs> my dark secret is not that I've murdered someone. Anyway, um, and I was like, I kind of just wish if I were to meet a genie that I could trust, that I could know that this genie's moral judgment was sound. Mm. I wish I could just wish that everyone could get exactly what they deserve. And even mm. though I am positive I would have less in that world, at least I would know it was the correct amount of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that would be such a comfort. But of course, it's impossible because who is this arbiter of, of what, everyone deserves it doesn't make any sense that you can't have that and that's why I agree with you that um you know I just did this episode about Evelyn War and Evelyn War is brilliant um he's such a good writer but I can't admire him as much as I admire someone like Ian Forster who wrote Maurice because Ian Forster is kind and I actually think that kindness is is looked down upon by by intelligent people so often and yet it is so much more powerful and um 
that's something I love about the Harry Potter books, right? Is that I, I often say that the person I aspire to be when I'm like old is a combination of Marmy, the mother from Little Women, and Dumbledore, because I just feel like they both they they they're both extremely bad people who well, I mean Marmy's not extremely bad, but she has an anger problem, who work through it and get to this point where they're just like they have equanimity and they're just kindly and and I know, I know Dumbledore is fucked up if you really think about it, but I think that most of the ways in which Dumbledore is fucked up actually comes from the fact that um, the first half of the series is a different series from the second half of the series. Like the first three books are children's yeah. books, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't actually think like sixth book Dumbledore would have sent Harry off to go live with these abusers in a way, right? I think that that's a trademark of the books having been children's books to begin with. I got a bit wrapped up in those thoughts. Um, I've lost. I'm lost. No, I, I, love, I, love, I just love that you that you talked about Marmy because I quite literally just made a post like yesterday about um, an incomplete list of treasured protagonists with anger issues that I very much project onto. And Marmy <laughs> was on that list of like angry characters. It's like on this list right there's Lilo from Lilo and Stitch Cora uh -huh. from Legend of Cora book five Harry like it's like very specific Princess Mononoke Akira's Kaneda Eve Palastri from you know Killing Eve and then Little Women that scene like when Joe is feeling oh, bad go down on your anger Joe <laughs> and Joe is like damn I would have let Amy die in that frozen pond because that bitch burned my book and I was like first of all I identify with that because That's I'm cool. sisters and we've wanted to kill each other over less and <laughs> second of all when Marmy is like this paragon of virtue and then she goes oh I've been angry nearly every day of my life and I was like what the fuck same <laughs> like you mean like I can be a good person and still be like default probably pissed at some greater thing or small thing and like that could be my default life and I can still somehow be good and kind I was like this is great I was like this is good news yeah no it's it's wonderful and I I think you know I I, I really find it meaningful that um god it's hard that jk rowling is so shit because it really feels like it taints everything but anyway um yeah it really feels meaningful to me that that dumbledore was bad as, as a young person and that mommy was angry as a young person because it, it it just yeah it becomes aspirational it's not that they're these perfect people it's that they're they're people that we can work to being more like which yeah. I, I mean literally i think of mommy about, i'm living with my parents at the moment so i think of mommy often when i'm like oh hold your tongue be calm yeah. <laughs> think of christ <laughs> um but uh i don't actually think of christ i'm not particularly religious anyway wanted to clarify that uh yeah i don't know so a uh, kindness i think is something that um is a reason that i like Drarry as a pairing because it only really works if there's a dramatic act of forgiveness and and this is why in I mean I've spoken about this before in my fix generally speaking Harry is a massive shit because I'm like I I think if for, for me if it's just a case of Harry forgives Draco I'm like how can that relationship be equal afterwards like what a huge thing Harry has now done like that is it's mad Therefore, that relationship is is off to a rocky, rocky, 
unequal, uneven start. Whereas if Harry is a piece of trash to Draco and they both forgive each other, that just makes it easy. So it's, yeah, it, it's funny because it, this, is like, this is gratifying to hear from you because like when I read your fix, right, I, I can, it's funny as an adult, right? Because probably as a kid, I'd, I'd probably be like, hey, why that girl, you know, write my character so mean? But like as an adult, like it's so gratifying because for me, like if I'm looking at Harry as like the self-insert character and maybe in my mind, he's like brown and not a white kid. And so, you know, like, like in my fandom version of him, like it's so satisfying to read him still angry because like in my mind, that was like the most compelling part of his character arc. Right. That like, yes, he's a good kid. And yes, he's a sacrificial kid, but he's also like, and and like the thing about that I like about your fix, right? And this is like, I just reread Codename L like the other day. Oh, um, it's funny. Sorry, I was going to bring up Codename L because I think brief insert. The point of Codename L for me was I was trying to figure out the fact that I don't think Harry and Draco belong together because I don't think Harry should have to forgive Draco. And it's mm -hmm. weird that in fandom he does have to. And like, it's weird that Ron and Hermione have to forgive Draco. Like that sucks for them. Yeah. Anyway, go yes. on. Like, well, and like, and this is the thing, right? Because like, I mean, <laughs> this is so funny. I feel like it's, it's so like British of you because you're like, there's this person that's like just talking about everything they've written. <laughs> like, if I tell you it's good, you're going to like clam up. But whatever, I'm right? Like, no, I won't. Like, I it's, like, okay. I okay, cool. it's like when I compare like the most compelling parts of like your characterization, right? When I think about, can I tell you something? And Codename L and like, right, like, very different Harry's but in my mind there's this like what you were saying like they're not there, there was no like they are meant to be like it is very much a choice that they're choosing because like they've made all of these other choices before and like it, it like there's no easy natural way to it like there's all of these side doors and like rationalizations that they both have to do in order to be like I'm allowed to have this, even though very much on paper and very much not on paper, it doesn't work. And like, there's this part in like Codename L where you're just like very mad, right? Because you want to be frustrated as a reader because it's like, oh my God, there are two ships passing in the night constantly. And like, they keep hurting each other's feelings and they keep being cruel. And like, when one person's ready, they push the other away. And then when that person's ready, the other person's not like no longer interested. But to me, it's like so realistic because like that wrestling, that like tension, that like philosophical dilemma, that like existential dread that comes with their story. Like for me, like that's why I'm there. Like I'm not interested in a pairing of them that doesn't at least have a little bit of that. And that has less to do with like wanting enemies to lovers and more just like wanting what's there in like the tools, like their narrative tools that you're given with the canon. And like wanting to see that shit played out. It, I, I thank you for everything you said. That's very kind. I think <laughs> forgiveness is, um, is the key thing that draws me to this. Uh, and, and I have enjoyed uh, fix where it's like, um, no, nope, yeah, they're just at Hogwarts. It's eighth year. Um, you know, they like each other, but neither of them will tell the other. I've, I've, I've read those and never enjoyed those, right? Where like the most the most fraught scene is one where Harry's like, I can't believe I scarred your chest. And Draco's like, it's the past now. And then they have sex and it's great. Um, those are fun, you know, but they're not, they're not, if those were the bulk of the stories, I would not have fallen in love with this. Oh, yeah. 
Um, I wanted to just touch on something you said, because um, this was on my list of questions for you. Uh, Brown Harry, right? So a, a fanon a fanon thing is that a lot of people uh, head canon Harry as uh, like Indian, right? Um, and there's actually some pretty in-depth fix where like Harry goes and finds his Indian relatives and it's like yeah. kind of amazing. Uh, and the the when I first heard about Desi, Desi Harry, I was like, oh, cool, great, exciting. But I then have also heard about a little bit of a backlash against it where I think there is the criticism of uh, Brown Harry is that it's often promoted most by white readers who were just like, it feels it feels virtue signaling, maybe. That's, that's mm-hmm. one criticism. But I was wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because for me, it's never going to feel like performative, right? Because it's like, oh, like this is just making him more of like myself or like more of the the purpose that I'm already using him for, right? Like self-insert. But like from your perspective, I can totally see how like there are parts, right, where like he's like, it's very much like aesthetic, you know, like it's like, like his Desi-ness, it's like, it doesn't, and not that I need, right, like a brown person's brownness to be the focal point of like their character arc but there are definitely times where you're like reading a fic and like it's very much like oh this is just like a new fanon thing and like for aesthetic purposes like he has dark brown skin and it's like chocolatey and you're like oh okay well we don't really like being described as food so you know (laughs) you know what I'm saying where it's like where like the like the reason for it doesn't seem to be thought out more than just like aesthetics but, and, and like that to me, like pandering is like, yeah, I could su- super see that, you know? But I feel like the net positive of it, and I'm not Desi, so maybe I can't like speak on specifically how Desi's feel like with him being, like with people choosing him to be that specific. It is type. weird how we've all kind of agreed. We're like, well, Harry is, he's Indian. It's in yeah, the canon. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, it's like one of those things that are like, you know, probably just like phenomenons of like fandom where like one person is like, has a particularly good idea. And it's just like, shit, yeah. And then everybody is like, yeah. So, and it just became like this thing that like a lot of people right. liked and agreed on. And then now it's like been accepted that like, okay, if you're making brown, like he's not going to be Italian. What the fuck? ADMI wrote that Draco had a crush on Lupin in third year. And I just, I like, it became so canon in my head that when I mentioned that in Teenage Wasteland, I had forgotten that I had gotten it. <laughs> Because I was just like, well, no, I mean, that's in the books. (laughs) You want to know what's crazy is that, like, because I don't have, like, this deep childhood attachment to the books, and I only read them recently, and, like, when I see um, gifts of the movies, I literally am like, oh, dude, I forgot these were all white kids. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to sound crazy to your audience, but, like, and, like, this is no hate on, like, fan art or, like, people who make edits of the movies. And like Harry's like straight up a white kid. Like I like I have no aversion to white Harry, but like in my mind, I'm just like society has progressed past the need for white Harry. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like I was like no 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 that was like pre you know hip with the kids. Like I like I don't need to dabble in that. Black Hermione has become canon, right? Because black you've got Black Hermione in the Cursed Child. So like Black Hermione yeah. is you know it's so it, I I kind of. I, it's sort of wonderful to imagine to reimagine Harry Potter with 
you know, Indian Harry, Black Hermione, Ginger Ron. It's just what a delight, you know. Um, I actually, in in exposure, I I wrote Harry as uh, Indian, and then um, I thought, mm, am I doing? I don't know. And I just took out any references. But in my head, very firmly, he is he is Indian in that one, and I haven't really thought that much about what his race is in the other ones. So I don't know. And you know, it's so funny too because like, and like this is gonna sound. Actually, I don't know how this is going to sound, so fuck it, right? But, like, brown people, black people, like, POCs, right? Like, I feel like we don't think nearly as much of race as, like, it's not at the forefront of our minds as much as I feel like white people think it is. Like, and this is not to say that, like, race is not a fundamental part of our reality, because it is. But what I mean is that like in the same way that like a person is going to approach a story and think about everything within that story, like, like, like for me, like, obviously I am aware of like racial dynamics like within Harry Potter because, you know, it's like a, it's like a blood supremacy story. It's like a major plot line. But when I think of his like brownness, like I don't, it, it's like so easy to think about because brownness is so my reality. Does that make sense? Like there's an ease about it that is just like, I, it never even occurred to me to not think of him that way. And then when like people were like, oh, Black Hermione is canon. I was like, dude, it literally didn't even have to be canon for it to be canon in my mind. I'm like, <laughs> That's my default reality. Like in my mind, I'm like, oh, that character, that doesn't belong to you. <laughs> Which is like very hilarious to me because it straight up does, right? Like dude, the dude was like, well, I don't even know what, oh, sorry, I'm on a call. Like, I don't even know like what, what is original towns is it surrey like i don't even like i don't know where that is but like it's funny to me that like as someone who's like thousands of miles removed from britain could just like forcibly claim a character for like the indigenous or like the migrant and just be like yeah it doesn't belong to you guys anymore like like obviously that's not how it works but in my mind it kind of just it is, like, you know and I think this, this comes back to what we were saying about how you're like I I have the right to enjoy literature on my own terms and I I I can only really relate to you on this via uh feminism and because I read okay. predominantly um literature by um until I was 22 I had a rule that I would only read a book if the author was dead. And so I have read a lot of very sexist books. And yet, and yet, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't matter how sexist, you know, a, a Shakespeare is, right? Mm-hmm. I still get to, there's this wonderful, um, there's this wonderful scene in a book called Regeneration. Um, it's by Pat Barker. Uh, and it's, I'm going to give you a little bit of context for this anecdote. Um, so the story is it's Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. And they're two war poets um, in a mental asylum uh, for shell-shocked soldiers. And um, Wilfred Owen is a massive fanboy of Siegfried Sassoon, who was by this point quite a famous poet. And he, in in the book, uh, he is worrying about meeting Siegfried Sassoon because he's his greatest hero. And he's just mm-hmm. like, what if I meet Siegfried Sassoon and he's actually terrible? And then there's this beautiful line where Pat Barker just writes it doesn't matter actually if he's a good or a bad person because the real Sassoon is in the poems and I just think it's so gorgeous and so true to how I feel because it doesn't for taking Evelyn Wall it doesn't matter that Evelyn Wall was a classist fascist if the part that I 
take from him is not like there's a part there's something in his writing that to me is the real war that is separate from the actual terrible war mm. if that makes sense and i think you can we have to do that with jk rowling right we can i can i can take a moral life lesson from dumbledore because it's like the, the real core of what jk rowling is to me is that not her blog posts mm-hmm it's it's so funny because it's like earlier when I was talking about that distance being normal for like indi indigenous kids, right? Specifically, if I'm talking about me, indigenous Micronesian kids, like you come to that terms with that distance so much early on that you can see good art for the transcendence that it is. And that it's, that's actually, and like, context right for someone who very much loves like the sublime and this idea that like there are experiences to be found in art that is not actually supposed maybe supposed is the wrong word the centering of yourself is not actually the point like it's good to be removed from the center and like see a thing for what it is or to be in awe of like a truth that is realized in art good art right whether it's like a particularly moving piece of music or like a well-written turn of phrase and that those things those sublime things can come from anywhere because they don't belong to the creators themselves and like iconography right and like absolute truths like maybe people might hear that and like immediately associate it with like you know tainted western christian ideals but like as an indigenous person like that is a survival method. Like as we navigate a world that like refuses to acknowledge like our existence in the present that wants to like believe that we exist in museums and that like we're disappearing native and that like we have nothing more to say or participate in the present, right? Like for me, like I wanna know that all art, all good art, all like thoughtful art, all challenging art, no matter like the shitty cultural and historical context it, it came from, like it's available to me because if not, then like nothing is available to me. And like how demoralizing to tell an indigenous kid that, that like they can only touch things that was like made by them. And it's like, well, what if our hands were bound for like 500 years? Like, what are we allowed to like see in other people? And I think like this to me is kind of like the hyper like politicized like individualism in in Western fandom spaces where like morality is definitely decided on like a, like as if you can, you know, eat the right foods and consume the right like organic shit and like buy the right fair trade things. And like somehow like your individual choices equal a just world. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, as a collectivist that has never been an option or a reality or practical like yeah, like it's a full you know what I'm, yeah it's an important yeah. enlightenment brainwashing to think that I think right yeah, I mean, like for me I'm like when when I think about politics the last thing I'm thinking about is what I get to enjoy and like the and like good art from like shitty places and for me like it's very much uh, like disconnected from the collectivist world when that becomes the predominant form of discourse around problematic art. Because my whole thing is like having conversations with those touchstones that exist for the majority world 
is how we get into the conversation. So if you remove those things and our ability to talk back to them and you like pretend that you can just like restart the world, like we don't only now have to fight for our perspective. We now have to fight for visibility, but Mm -hmm. it's like, we can't just pretend like those structures didn't exist that made it so that the British literary canon is the thing. Like for me, like removing that from the library is not gonna like undo all of the impact it had. Like if anything, you're just removing my opportunity to like talk back at a thing that we weren't allowed to talk back to. Do you know what I'm saying? Like- I, th- I think you make absolute sense. What, you, what, I, what I agree with on this is rather than saying, um, look, we should just not ever think about Milton again because Milton was um, kind of into genociding the Irish. Uh, it's more- we need to add people to the canon. We need to force people who have so far only ever bothered with the British canon to look beyond that. Because especially in, in the internet age, like that is, you can't, we have more time to read. We like, we have more, we have more ability. It is easier than it has ever been before to read. Um, therefore yes. diversifying the canon is possible. Okay. So I have a friend who is a history professor at, um, uh, university in England. Um, and he has this whole thing about how he, he constantly is complaining about how students these days do less than students in the past. And I thought he was being a bit, he's, he's a real grump. He's adorable. And I was like, okay, you're being a persnickety old man. And he was like, no, hear me out. When I first went to university on my first day, um, I went to my history tutorial and our history tutor just said something like, God, I wish I could remember the title of the essay they gave him. It was something like, what is actaconicic aesthetic? And do you agree? And everyone in the class was just like, what? what and he was it? like, all right, off you go. Now they didn't have the internet. It was like the 80s. So they, the, the kids just was like, it was, you know, these five 18 year olds go to the library and get out like the encyclopedia and look up like ectokinesis aesthetic or whatever. I'm making up the term, but it was something absolutely yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. And they get it and and the description is something like, uh, you know, they get a description of aesthetic and they're like, okay, I think we understand what aesthetic is. And then they get a description of ectokinesis and they're like, all right, uh, the description said something like, um, ectokinesis related to ectokinesis. So they go to ectokinesis and it's like, none of it makes any sense, right? And it takes them like, collectively all working together two whole days to get a reading list to get like okay these are the books we will need then they can start writing the essay after they've done the reading that they found and he was like i googled aesthetic recently and there was a wikipedia article that came up instantly and the wikipedia article was so much better than any of the essays that we wrote and so his theory is nowadays a student would be given that essay title and they would instantly be able to know where to look. And that mm. gives you so much extra time that he's like, we need to be demanding more. We should not be asking students to do what they could have done with what we were asking them to do 30 years ago. And I find this encouraging as a, as a way of looking at, um, you know, how we teach English literature because I'm like, yeah, let's make, let's we don't we don't need to have we don't need to choose between James Baldwin and and Milton we have both when we're talking about you know a university course right there's there's space for both because of that that ease of access Mm -hmm. and you know it's so 
it's so funny to me because fanfic is was appealing to me because of its like uh dialectic like that kind of like transformative nature where this is like a microcosm of what you know Jean Reese was doing with like White Star Goes to Sea and like yeah uh, uh and like and and what I had said was like obviously right obviously not every fanfic writer is interested in that that can, uh, sorry uh, that can, it, can I, I just want to give context in case people don't know about uh, White Star Goes to Sea so White Star Goes to Sea is basically a, a kind of a Jane Eyre retelling but from the perspective of um Bertha is that her, is her name Bertha um from uh rochester's mad wife in the attic and so Mm -hmm. it's a very uh you know it engages a lot with colonialism uh and it's it kind of ruins jane Eyre, to be honest it's hard to like Mm -hmm. jane after you read the book anyway go on sorry i just want in case people didn't know what it was well and like and and that's just like in a list of things like books i've read where these writers could easily write essays but they're using the mechanism of storytelling because that's where like the people that they're having conversations with are the original story writers, right? So it's like, I'm not gonna tell some, like it, would, it wouldn't make sense for me to tell someone to read Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe and not read Heart of Darkness because like, and, that, and, I, and that's not because I want them to like fall in love with, you know, Joseph Conrad's racism. But it's because like context matters and like history repeats itself when you forget how we got somewhere. And like like what you were saying, there's room for that. And that's that there's not only room for that, like that should be how the canon is like that should be the trajectory of how we build canons as like books in conversation with each other, you know, like because that's what they are. They're not like these individual stories built in a vacuum. Like we write in response to other stories that we were forced to read, you know? And it's like, to me, I would much rather help build a young person's critical lens than try to curate them a perfect list of like morally correct books so that they're never exposed to like racism. Cause it's like, fuck that. They like live in a world with that. Like I'd much rather have them like, interact with some like you know what I'm saying like the conversation that's going on when you use a story to react to another story I I completely agree and also something you said the idea of curating a list of of like morally acceptable works would stumble straight into I mean that's what the Victorians did right they thought they understood morality I think you the the danger of of uh of doing that is that you're we are definitely wrong about our morality. I don't know how yet, but uh, we are. And that's why it's so important to teach literature in a way that allows you to to um, to kind of think about morality critically rather than just to like see it as a, as a good how-to, right? Um, that's, there's a... N- yeah, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, sorry, no, I just wanted to say like the internet is like terrifying right and like there are a lot of like the old guard that would be like you know it was a net it was a net wrong like it was a net negative like there's no way that this was a net positive you honestly won't hear that from indigenous people who would have been forgotten if not for the democrat like the democratization of information and like the fact that like i can talk to you about this because we met over the internet or the fact that like our movements benefited from 
like our indigenous movements in the Pacific, thousands of miles away from like continental America, benefited from like black organizers, like working hard to like push their social movements into the, you know, cyber sphere. And like us getting to like materially benefit off of that information and storytelling that was happening you know, like if you were on Tumblr in like 2010 and like you were seeing a different form of like engagement of politics and recognition of like other movements besides what was happening on like CNN. Like that was like a big deal for literature too because all of a sudden like I can tweet about an or book review for this like small time book writer like in, in Guam And like someone who like, you know, like Naomi Klein or whatever might read it. And like right now there's this um, Chamorro writer that just like published this um, memoir slash manifesto. And like, he's a really brilliant writer. And like, out of all people, he got like a blurb from Alice Walker. And like, Mm -hmm. I just remember thinking like, that's not a thing that was possible before the internet. Like it just wasn't. Mm -hmm. Like there was no way that we were on anybody's important literature radar before that. And like before the advent of like marginalized people making their own spaces because they were finally given tools that were only previously available to like the military, right? Like telecommunications and shit. So I, for me, like, yeah, I just I, I think about those things. <laughs> well, sorry, what was that? I said I think I find it reassuring that you feel that way because I'm I'm I tend to feel fairly bleak about the internet, and it's it's uh, refreshing to hear your point of view on that. Yeah, I and I think the reason why I'll always err on the side of like, and and it's funny, right? Because we in the Pacific have, like technology has always been something like weaponized against us, right? Like the nuclear age was shit that happened in our backyard, right? Like the US tested nukes in the Marshalls, like in Micronesia, like I have cousins and friends who like suffered from those nuke testings, right? And like, when I think of modernity, like, it's not really exciting. And, like, America and, like, the military, like, and, like, Marvel movies, like, none of that shit will ever be appealing to me, right? And yet, in spite of all of those things, this kind of, like, ability for marginalized people to to take a tool that was meant to, like, bar them and kind of just be like, no, fuck you, I'm going to use this to, like, for my own benefit and for my people. Like, that to me is like inherently hopeful. And that to me like tells me that like not all, you know, the world is not doomed. Like, I don't think I could be a nihilist just because there's so many indigenous people that have like survived and created art and interact with art in spite of like most empires not wanting us to be here. And like, if the internet is part of that and if that's like a third space where we do that, like that shit's cool to me, you know? Like I'll take all of the negatives that come with it if it's like a net positive for us. But yeah, I just wanted to like add that. No, that's gorgeous. I, I'm I'm very pleased that you said that. Um, I I think I find um, fix which try to get which, fix that posit that Draco is not guilty because he was a child. I uh, I don't find as compelling because um, I think that I have a hard time uh, forgiving Draco as a character if he's 24 and he is over it. If, if if I still remember things I said when I was 10 uh, with wincing horror at night, <laughs> he can feel bad about the fact that, that Hermione Granger was tortured in his living room and he didn't do anything. Like, you see what I mean? Even if yeah, it, I, I, yeah. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like he needs to feel bad. He just has to. Otherwise, he's a shitty person. Like I it, it's it's that's, you know, that sucks that that's his lot in life. But I can't imagine how he wouldn't be a shitty person if he doesn't feel bad. Um, yeah, and I think that's what I was talking about. Guilt, like not guilt in like a like in a justice system way, but like guilt is something that like a human feels and is like and is a mechanism for like sorting through cognitive dissonance and like moral choices Mm -hmm. and like removing that part of like the emotional human experience like to me dehumanizes a person because like the work that someone puts in in order to rehabilitate themselves is valuable and like to me like I want to see that like shift and I think that's what I had talked about in my original like (laughs) I I hate calling it like a tumblr essay but whatever (laughs) in the tumblr grace essay I think that's what I was talking about when I was like talking about like grace as like an action or like a relationship to change where like I'm not even looking for any like arbiter of justice or punishment. I'm just looking for the inner wrestling that I feel like I do all the time when I'm questioning my own decisions. And I'm and I haven't even like murdered anyone like what you were saying, you know, so it's like to me and, and maybe that's just like. Uh, like, like I shouldn't, like, I'm not going to hold that standard up to every single fic writer, right? Like people are allowed to write to get their rocks off, like whatever, right? Like, I'm not going to like go to like a porn without plot and just be like, Hey, where the fuck is his guilt? (laughs) You know, like that's, that's just like insane. But I guess, so so obviously I'm not talking about like fix that don't want to focus on that. I think I'm more just talking about like, I'm less interested in fix that that right character is as if like you can wake up and make a different decision that was the pattern of your decisions. And like, that doesn't like cost you something like that doesn't like cost a, a certain amount of like effort or reflection. Just how like, you know, like I love fix that like, you know, the boys go to therapy because I'm like, yeah dude like they should and like and even like a harry that is like still capable of doing shitty things like that to me is more compelling than a harry that is like i am a good person and i died for my people and that surely didn't fuck me up and that surely didn't make me someone who's capable of lashing out like i think what i'm getting at is like complicated characters who are very contradictory in themselves is something that i look for in fic and I'm not interested in fix that don't at least explore that tension or like visit it a little bit. Because to me, I'm like, what? <laughs> what character is not, what human is not constantly reassessing themselves? And maybe that's like a bit of a projection, but I'm like, whatever. Yeah, we're here. Some, some of them aren't, you know, some of them yeah. just live their life in the present and it is a great time for them. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, I feel, I feel you. Um, okay. All right. So we're going to wrap it up, but I wanted to ask you to recommend uh, both. So you've mentioned thick wise, you've mentioned by the grace and you've mentioned unwanted by, I think it's pronounced Abedil, but I'm not sure. Do you have any other ones you want to bring up or are those two that you'd like to recommend? Um, I, yeah, those are the two that I've read. I, like the um Hogwarts Crammer or Hermione Granger's Hogwarts Crammer it's mm-hmm. like a long title but it's I think it's by Lost Abbey I don't even know how to say that title um but that that one's another really good one I I if, I mean if you've listened to this podcast like to the end like literally congratulations just <laughs> like um, like for the amount of tangents involved but for me like if you're if you like fix that explore 
kind of like the political context of the wizarding wars um yeah i love hogwarts crammer i love rebellious kids doing hood rat shit in order to like fuck the government (laughs) there's a a pod fic of that one i think also um so i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure someone recorded that even though it's massively long so yeah uh hermione granger's cramner for delinquents we think it's called and we think it's by someone called wasabi uh and then (laughs) what i think it's okay i think it's wasp abby because i have typed in wasabi (laughs) and it's not that there's a p in there and so i don't want to like misguide people okay all right all right got it um and then by the grace by lettered and unwanted by uh I think it is spelled A-I-B-I-D-I-L. Yeah, and that's not even like necessarily like a political fic. It's just I enjoy Harry's characterization and Hermione's like friendship and like their relationship in that. So that's very much like that was just something that I brought up because I love Harry and Hermione's like characterization in that. I mean, Draco's too, but specifically, I mean, I think we can all tell that like I read for whatever Harry's like fucked up story arc is going to be in a pic and then everybody there is like there for the ride <laughs> so yeah so it's like oh, yeah i'm only the draco <laughs> harry is entirely ancillary um abadil does quite a lot of um stories that deal with with the political context of the wizarding world and i think that they are very thoughtful about uh about sort of wizarding politics um which we didn't go into uh i we was i was i had a question on here about like foreign politics in the wizarding world but we're not going to do that um okay so next question uh i like to recommend a book that is approachable to someone who because a lot a lot of people fall deep into fanfic and stop reading novels and Mm -hmm. uh then they'll instagram me and be like please help me i've only read gay wizard porn for a year and i'm like (laughs) don't worry i've got you have you read giovanni's room um so oh that's a good one yeah because it's feelsy as hell um but so yeah I, i i guess what i really would love if you had this would be a um a fic that a novel that dealt with uh post-colonialism empire whatever um but would still appeal to people who are at the moment reading a lot of fic can you You know i'm I'm like so glad you sent me this question ahead of time because it took me like a minute like to (laughs) i i have one by the way i felt so excited when i when i remembered um homegoing by ya gyasi because it is like this ambitious novel of a like a debut novel of this um this uh black woman writer who writes basically the story of these two half sisters and you follow these vignettes of like their posterity and it takes place it like begins in Ghana and this is like right before like the transatlantic slave trade is about to like happen or it's I guess it's like in media race like the, like it's happening mm-hmm. and like one of the sisters ends up uh like in Ghana and then like the other sister is like sold um and like taken to America like during the slave trade and so you're given all of these vignettes of these characters that are from the same like line and you see like the black Amer- like the black experience right like the black african experience specifically in ghana and then like the black american experience as it like moves through all of the like centuries of time but it's in such a personal accessible way that like was breathtaking for me because i had read it knowing that i was in a reading rut and i wasn't trying to like 
wrestle with something that would like like language wise like require a lot of me and because she writes these vignettes as romances right because like it's basically 20 vignettes of people falling in love and having a child and then in the next vignette you're gonna meet their kid who falls in love with someone else and has a kid right and like and it's like 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 the it, it's like so ambitious like to cover that much history from a very personalized perspective but it's so beautiful because she writes these characters and it's not meant to be like a story of like black people versus white people and like the suffering victim versus like the conquest like you know like it's very much as varied as like human experiences like wanting to impress someone you like and like but all of this happening in the context of black history and it 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 like totally was refreshing for me because the language was so like accessible the vignettes were so compelling every vignette is probably only 10 pages long and so you feel at the end like you've got this bird's eye view of history but in the most personal romantic way possible and like I I was just like great job like totally won me over so if that's what you want like that sounds perfect uh I want to read that that sounds really exactly what I want um great can so homegoing can you spell the author's name Homegoing by ya- Gyasi, Y-A-A, and then Gyasi, G-Y-A-S-I. Perfect. Thank you. That's a great suggestion. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna flag um, Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who um, is a wonderful writer uh, from Nigeria. And Americana is, uh, I, I hesitate to call it a love story, but I would say that the love story is, a, is an important part of it. And... Um, I mean, it got me right away because it opens with a woman who is a, she's teaching at Princeton, but there aren't any hairdressers who can do her hair in Princeton. So she's waiting on the train to go get her hair done at the next town over. And I was just like immediately so invested. I was like, oh my God, this poor woman, like she needs better hair care. I must (laughs) find out next what happens. Uh, And yeah, and it spans, uh, basically it's about, um, a boy and a girl in Nigeria who um, are in love and then she immigrates legally to America going on this like very highbrow like she you know becomes a professor at Princeton uh, track and he illegally immigrates to Britain and so we see really I mean it's 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 fascinating for me because I grew up in a bunch of different countries so I actually really relate to it on a on a kind of third culture kid level but um yeah, you see what it's like to be a privileged immigrant and what it's like to be an, uh, you know, an illegal immigrant and the kind of interplay between British and Nigerian culture and American and Nigerian culture. It's just, it's really great. Um, she is, she's a really, really talented writer. So I think those are two decent book recommendations for you. Um, Shibs, is there anything else you want to talk about, about imperialism and colonialism? Or do you think we've covered all of it? I feel like... I feel like we'll never cover all of it, but we certainly covered a lot. And I, I'm just thankful that like the internet and fandom world makes the world small and that we can randomly have these conversations because it's been so pleasant. And I, I just enjoy you as a author, but also as like this person who gets to host these conversations. And yeah, I, I have nothing more to add than just like, this was genuinely a, 
a good time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to you for doing it uh, and for putting up with my many, many uh, ignorances. Um, you, you're very tolerant of me. Um, so thank you so much, Shibs. Thank you for listening to this special episode on colonialism. I hope you learned something. And thank you so much to Shibs for taking the time to talk to me. I know these episodes are longer, but I thought everything Shibs had to say was fascinating. So thank you for listening. Don't forget you can find her on Tumblr at wistfulrat.tumblr.com if you want to hear her thoughts on Drarry. And if you want to read more generally her thoughts on culture, she's at shabonm.wordpress.com. That is spelt S-I-O-B-H-O-N-M dot wordpress.com. So go and follow her there.